This is an ABC podcast. You ain't nothing but Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Hey kids, could I talk to you for about 30 seconds? Uh, this is Elvis Presley. If you believe polio's beaten, I ask you to listen. Well, it seems that at least in parts of the world, Elvis's warning at the height of the polio epidemic in the 1950s is still relevant today. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Despite a $15 billion global vaccination campaign that's been running for the last 30 years, the polio virus clings on in parts of Pakistan, Afghanistan and Nigeria, where Islamist extremists terrorise and target vaccine teams. Journalist Joe Chandler travelled to northern Nigeria to report on the frontline battle against the polio virus and made this special feature one of our highlights of the year. My name is Virus Poliomyelitis. You've never seen me, but I'm sure you've seen my shadow. It wasn't so long ago that polio outbreaks were the stuff of horror movies for parents across the world. were especially vulnerable. I feel very active today. I may even start an epidemic. In Australia, epidemics raged from the 1930s, striking and crippling invisibly, randomly, up to 40,000 people, mostly children. Then, in the 50s and 60s, Jonas Salk and Albert Sabin developed vaccines and changed the world. Heading the medical men was Dr Jonas Salk, whose polio vaccine had been tested and carefully evaluated. Copies of the official finding were wheeled in as Dr Salk talked with his family on what was to be his day of magnificent achievement. By the mid-60s, polio had all but vanished in countries like Australia and the United States, but it continued to rampage across poorer nations. In 1988, there were 350,000 cases of polio. That year, the Global Polio Eradication Initiative was launched with an audacious mission to wipe out the disease by the year 2000. But 18 years past that deadline, the virus hangs on just. Last year, there were a mere 22 cases of wild polio virus worldwide. Eradication is finally tantalisingly close. But in this endgame, the vaccinators are fighting more than just the virus. The pathogen's last stand is in some of the most dangerous corners of the planet, where it survives under the protection of radical Islamic groups, the Taliban and Boko Haram, which prevent vaccine reaching babies and children. I'm joining vaccinators, who armed only with their iceboxes, checklists and determination, are taking their magic pink elixir deep into the danger zone. So I was inside distributing the vaccines. I was just hearing gunshot. I instructed them, I said, let's fell to the floor. So we all fell to the floor. It was when I tried to sit up, I found out that people were lying on me. I was like soaked in blood. That's Abbas Ibrahim Musa, a polio campaign coordinator in the city of Kano in northern Nigeria. Musa narrowly escaped death in an attack on his vaccine team in 2013. We'll hear more later. Boko Haram extremists were blamed for the attack. The head of the polio eradication campaign in Nigeria, Dr Tunji Funjo, 
explains that Boko Haram roughly translates as Western knowledge is sin. That includes Western medicine, and so vaccine teams that distribute it become targets. I think in recent years, you know, we had 12 vaccinators in Kanu State about three years ago, and eight in Bornu State who were gone down by insurgents. Dr Funcho oversees medical, volunteer and indeed military troops fighting polio across Nigeria, including smuggling vaccine into the badlands held by Boko Haram. It's a high-risk, hugely expensive but imperative operation. Because as long as the polio virus has a place to breed, there's a risk it will regain strength, gather reinforcements and break out. It's done it before. It's early morning, but already scorching hot. I'm riding in an overloaded minivan with two other journalists and an assortment of polio campaigners and health officials through Kano City, the capital of one of the most crowded regions in Africa's most populous nation. We'd hoped to visit Borno State, a couple of hundred miles east of here, where Boko Haram has a strong presence and, not coincidentally, where polio cases erupted in 2016. But it's just too dangerous. Even here, we're constantly escorted by a half-dozen police. We pull up in a cloud of dust at the village of Ongogo. And it's quite a scene. Excited kids are lured out of their homes by a troop of drummers and a dancing clown with a bright blue face, Papa Lolo. He circles about, pouring sweat and raining sachets of milk powder and candy on a gaggle of joyful, ragged kids. It looks like a circus, but it's serious business. This performance is part of a decades-long rolling calendar of painstaking efforts to eliminate polio from Africa and the world. At the village health centre, we meet a dozen women draped in blue hijabs, volunteer vaccinators, the foot soldiers of the polio campaign. They're loading up small eskies with vials of polio vaccine, the same one you might recall having dropped on your tongue as a kid, though this live vaccine hasn't been used in Australia in over a decade. These days, first world kids get a jab of killed vaccine with their routine immunisations. But in places like Nigeria, live oral vaccine is still the workhorse of the eradication effort. It's easy to administer, no needles, anyone can do it. It's cheap, less than 20 cents a dose. And because it's taken directly into the gut where the virus breeds, it's highly effective. But there is a catch, a big one. Live vaccine can, in rare circumstances, mutate into a form which causes paralysis. There's been one such case in Nigeria in April this year. And just last week, three cases of vaccine-derived polio were reported in Papua New Guinea. The fear is that it could ignite an outbreak like the one in Syria last year, where immunisation rates had dived and 74 children were struck down. The vaccinators are mostly young village women. They're paid a small stipend, roughly US $30 a month, for their time and their local knowledge and, in a context like northern Nigeria, their courage. The vaccine teams vanish behind crumbling, sun-baked walls of earth and cement, looking for babies and children under five. They round up and dose as many as they can find. That's where Papa Lolo, the candy man, comes in. He's bait. 
It's a well-oiled operation. Binta Abdusalam, who works for UNICEF, talks me through the game plan. There's this main offensive that will push across the country over the next four days, and then a mop-up sweep to find anyone they might have missed. Maybe reaching those houses that they have not reached, reaching those children that are absent. What is your target for the campaign? 196,820. Yes, 196,820. That's how many doses of vaccine they plan to deliver in this operation. Binta is a woman on a mission. How many under five children in the household? Do they have a newborn? Is there any visitor? Is there any child that is sleeping? The scene we are witnessing in Ongogo is simultaneously playing out across five countries in the Lake Chad polio danger zone over these next four days. This exercise will take around 138,000 vaccinators door-to-door in cities and slums and villages, looking for infants and children in places where a birth certificate and a street address are unknown luxuries. Do you have a child that cannot be able to use his or her hands properly? Then getting the okay of their parents to give them the vaccine. Then the last thing, they advise the child for routine immunisation. Poliomyelitis, the disease, is spread by the highly contagious poliovirus. It hides out and breeds in the human gut. In the absence of toilets and sewers, it's pooed into the landscape and carried about by flies and foot traffic. It seeps into the water supply and spreads by kissing or sharing food or shaking hands. Most carriers never show any sign of sickness, but in about one in 200 cases, the virus invades the nervous system, withering limbs, causing paralysis, even death. Babies and small children are the most at risk. After all the hard work of finding the children, giving them the vaccine is easy, A couple of pink drops are squeezed into the child's mouth. A dark stroke of ink is painted on her finger and the record is scrawled on the walls of her house in chalk. This strategy has achieved the impossible across the globe. Most astonishingly in India, population 1.3 billion and counting, which has now been polio-free since 2014. But in India, vaccinators didn't have to confront guns and accusations that they were pawns of a Western plot. This was the reality in northern Nigeria only 15 years ago, when polio campaigns were shut down across five Muslim states after an influential Kano physician claimed he had evidence the vaccine was laced with drugs that would make women infertile. The boycott lasted a year until local leaders could be convinced it was safe again. But by then, the virus was on the run. The year before the vaccine ban, there were just 202 polio cases in all of Nigeria. But by 2006, the toll had blown back out to more than 1,100. The outbreak jumped borders, rampaging through 20 countries across Africa, the Middle East, Southeast Asia. It cost more than $500 million to clean up the mess. Recovery and building confidence so it won't happen again has taken a monumental effort working with religious and community leaders, assuring them that the vaccine won't make girls barren, slowly whittling back the number of vaccine-denying or so-called non-compliant households. And it's worked. Now they have changed. So they, they are now aware that it, it costs nothing. It only gives protection against the deadly killer disease. 
If a parent still refuses vaccine, Binta has another trick up her sleeve. She will invite into the house a crippled polio survivor. The most able-bodied are on crutches, but many of them are so damaged that they use their hands to scoot across the earth on their bottoms. Don't let your child become like us, is their mantra. This is Ismail, a 13-year-old polio survivor, his withered legs tucked up underneath him. He gets around in a low cycle chair. He's a strapping youth from the hips up. He's plainly not happy being used as a poster child for what happens when you don't vaccinate, but is reluctantly enlisted as an example. Because he don't want them to be in this situation as he is now. And whenever he saw people moving on their feet, he feel very, very unhappy and sad. And he planned his plan of not taking him to vaccination centre. But his parents likely had no option to give him the vaccine. Ismail is a child of the time of the Kano boycott, when distrust in the vaccine was at its height. Today, remarkably, that situation has turned around in all but the few isolated pockets where Boko Haram extremists maintain their grip. No small thanks to the likes of Binta and her team. I would like to introduce some, some of the people we work with in mm. polio education. Yes. This is my RIP, religious focal person. So anybody who said that he will not take this immunization, related to his religion, we used to go and sit down with him and discuss him and sustain him and show him it has no harm. And they used to accept it. This is The Health Report on RN. I'm Jo Chandler, and today, the 30-year war on polio. We visit one of the last battlegrounds, northern Nigeria. During our week on the road, we sit through hours and hours of meetings with local mullahs and traditional leaders. These niceties can be pretty frustrating to a journalist like me who just wants to get to what I imagine is the business end of the story. But sitting sweltering through the umpteenth hour of formalities, it dawns on me that this is the business end. The archive of health literature analysing the polio campaign demonstrates that beating the disease in the last endemic countries, Nigeria, Afghanistan and Pakistan, turns as much on trust and diplomacy as it does on surveillance and logistics. Which is why global public health organisations were so infuriated when news broke in 2011 that the CIA trying to locate Osama bin Laden's family hideout in Pakistan, had used a fake hepatitis vaccination program to try to find DNA samples. The White House issued a letter essentially acknowledging that that they had used this fake vaccination campaign. Shattered public health experts like UNICEF's Dr Peter Crowley expected the fallout of this violation of trust to be devastating. We were shocked because... Operating in environments like that, which are highly insecure, highly sensitive, highly politicised, it is very, very important that we keep our work seen as neutral by the populations that we're trying to reach. One US expert feared it would postpone polio eradication by 20 years and lead to 100,000 more cases. Dozens of polio workers have since been murdered by the Taliban in Pakistan. But in Nigeria... The long years of effort to reinforce faith in the vaccine appear to have held, 
thanks to carefully nurtured relationships between local mullahs and officials, the national government and the international apparatchiks of the Polio Eradication Coalition. We follow our police escorts back into the chaos of Kano City and pull up at a small health centre. There we find Health Officer Abbas Ibrahim Musa, who is overseeing the vaccination drive in this part of the city. He first came to this neighbourhood in 2009 because it had such high rates of vaccine refusal or non-compliance. He's been instrumental in turning that around. Then, in a day, you could record like 500 households with non-compliances. Uh, but when we were transferred down here, and if you, want, if you go through the uh, record, you understand that at the round, we end up mostly with 30-something non-compliances, which indicates we've done enough or we've done a lot. Musa explains the process of bringing those non-compliance numbers down, in particular quashing the rumour that the vaccine could stop women falling pregnant. Well, then you know there was this political interference in the entire exercise and people tend to look at it as something that is detrimental to their health and it is uh, like going to retard childbirth in the near future. So that gave rise to the rejection, resistance and refusal by the household heads. But when we came in with the health education, with the UNICEF people that were with us, social mobilisation and other things, these cases were reduced to a very maximum figure. Well, we persuade them by educating them. You know, the important aspect of it is for you to know their problem. Once you know their problem, then you try to explain to them in a way they will understand. But for someone to just tell you, I don't want polio, when you say why, you say, no, I just don't want it. You find it difficult to even explain, to interact with him. But once you get to a person and say, why don't you like polio? Because they say polio is harmful to my children. Then you are in a better position to explain to him. Then you'll be able to explain and put him through where he will understand. The key in this part of the country is to persuade the fathers. You see, like in this part of the nation, we have this issue of the household head. You find out that most of the times the parents, the mothers, will want the children to be immunised. But because there is a standing order by the fathers, then they will tend not to, like, oblige until when the fathers agree or allow them to let the children be immunised. But not everyone was happy with the advances being made. We asked Musa about that day four years ago on another special mass vaccination drive just like this one when he and his team were attacked at this clinic. Well, it was uh, a Friday, 8 February 2013 to be precise, at about uh, 8.30 a.m. We were billed to go out for the mop-up on Friday. So... We then here was just a cubicle made of cubicle made of ceiling. So I was inside distributing the vaccines for the teams to go out. Then I had a gunshot. So I just raised my head up to look and I saw somebody here holding a gun. Then he sh- fired the gun again. So what I did was the people we were together with, I instructed them, I said, let's fell to the floor. So we all fell to the floor. What transpired then was I was just hearing gunshot. Bah, bah, bah. He was saying in Hausa, Barcelona, shoot them there, Barcelona, shoot them there, Barcelona. Uh, after a while, he said, now, where is that petrol? Bring it. So he now set the benches here. He set them on fire. 
So when he set them on fire, that was when I, I now decided, let me try to get out because the place may go ablaze and then I may get burnt inside. How many people were sheltering with you at that point? Two were shot inside, one outside. One was sitting here on a bench. So they shot him. He ran in here and came out. And I could believe he was the one they were saying, shot him, shot him, shoot him, shoot him. Because they had to follow him down. Down to one office there. They pumped bullets to his chest. When you need to see the pool of blood there. So we they were inside. I tried now getting out. It was when I tried to sit up. I found out that people were lying on me. I was like soaked in blood. Three people were killed, one a young woman who had just qualified as a nurse. Witnesses say the gunman came and left on mopeds. That same morning, a short distance away, gunmen on mopeds also attacked another health clinic. Reports vary, but six to eight women vaccinators and at least one man were killed. No one was charged, though the wide assumption is that they were all linked to Boko Haram. The insurgents have menaced, bombed, shot and murdered an estimated 20,000 citizens in northern Nigeria over the past decade. Another eight vaccinators were gunned down in Borno State, Boko Haram's stronghold, as the Nigerian polio campaign boss Dr Funsho told us earlier. He has no doubt the extremists were also behind the attack on Musa's clinic. Musa himself can't say for sure why Boko Haram attacked his clinic – He wonders if it was just opportunistic violence and the vaccinators just happened to be in the wrong place. But whatever the objective, the attack threw a grenade into the polio campaign in Kano. And afterwards, did people become concerned that vaccination would be dangerous? Did it have an impact on your program? It really had, yes. Because after that uh, incident, I think it lasted for about eight months or so without any immunisation activities being carried out here in the facility. And even the first round we conducted, there was this fear among the team members and everybody. We were even calling people to come and uh, partake. They would say, no, we won't come. We are not interested. Or you find a vaccinator hiding her vaccine carrier inside her hijab because she doesn't want to be seen carrying the, the box. Despite these dangers, by July 2016, thanks to the determined work of Musa and Binter and their legions of colleagues, there had not been a single case of wild poliovirus in Kano, indeed in Nigeria, in almost three years. Hopes were high that Africa would soon be certified as polio-free. And then came shattering news, a cluster of four cases in Borno State. All the victims were children who had fled to camps with their families to escape Boko Haram. Genetic analysis of the strain in each case indicated it had been festering undetected for five years. With 1.8 million people having fled Boko Haram scattered across the country, the outbreak put all of Nigeria back on high alert. The fear is that the virus will again break out of these enclaves. It's as easy as catching a bus and travelling the 350 miles from Boko Haram country back into Kano City, which is why Musa and his team are standing by every day at the bus station. Once a child, one child is carrying poliovirus, he can transmit to 200 children. What if 
the 10 children that are coming are carrying polio virus. They are going to do, distribute or share to how many children? Yeah. 2,000 children. Yeah. So that is our fear. This is why we tend to, like now I have a team at the motor park. Mm -hmm. And apart from that, even on a daily basis, there's a team that works in the motor park. I have one of the biggest motor parks in Kano. Mm -hmm. And those teams work through Monday, Friday. We position them so as to immunize those children that are going and those that are coming from Meiduguri. Musa rosters shifts of health workers to meet every bus to try to dose every child and infant before they vanish into the city and the overflowing camps of internally displaced people. The bus station is in the middle of a chaotic marketplace. Our police guards aren't happy with us being here, and neither am I, I admit. A posse of foreign journalists and aid workers make a prize target. We're hoping to interview families coming in from Borno, but it's a long shot. Crowded minivans roll in and out according to random need, not a timetable. The Nigerian army has made considerable gains against Boko Haram, and when we visit, the flood of families fleeing their terror has eased some. But the reality is that this city can't be fortified against the virus, which is why the vaccination campaign is so critical. Little by little, Nigeria is inching toward the magic moment of so-called herd immunity, when even if the virus sneaks in, it won't find an unvaccinated host. It feels so close. Nigeria hasn't had another case of wild polio since the Borno cluster in August 2016. The hotspot right now is Afghanistan, where another group of extremists, the Taliban, are stopping vaccines getting to babies. Seven of the eight cases recorded worldwide so far this year are in Afghanistan. The eighth is in Pakistan. Worryingly, this tally is higher than at the same time last year. So while hopes are high that polio is indeed close to extinction, victory is not assured. Even if there isn't another single case, polio won't be conquered without Musa and Binter and thousands like them continuing to patrol the front line taking vials of vaccine from village to village, house to house, baby to baby. Have you had any more security incidents involving your teams in the years since? No, nope. ever since then, not. Not anymore. And since at the heap of the uh, insurgent, nobody was killed. We feel it is safe for us to, to work. You're but I believe, Yes, right? but I believe deep in them, they have that commitment. If not for the commitment, nobody would have come to risk his life for the polio eradication. We always tell them at the training that let them believe they are working to save humanity. And even if polio is eradicated, their names will be written in gold as people that had helped to eradicate polio in Nigeria. So Musa's name would be high on that list of names written in gold, alongside Binta, who we met back in Ongogo. And up near the Niger border, on our last day on the road, we meet another polio crusader worthy of the roll call of polio glory, Rhoda Sampson. She's taking vaccine teams into a neighbourhood in Katsina, which is a hotspot of hardline vaccine refusal. She goes in sweet-talking mothers and cuddling babies and hard-selling vaccine. We come to a house where the walls are scrawled with messages of defeat left by previous vaccine teams, and we find a newborn baby. Oh, so thank you for your Okay, what she is saying that the vaccination of polio is not food. So the husband says since the government can't provide food, so they will not accept immunization. 
the woman's husband suddenly turns up. He's not happy finding vaccinators and journalists invading his house. But Samson jiggles his baby and talks rapidly at him in Hausa, smiling and cajoling. And she talks him around. Joe Chandler with that special report, one of our summer series here on The Health Report. And Joe visited Nigeria with the assistance of Results.org, a not-for-profit international public health advocacy agency. Thanks also to producer Maria Tickle. I'm Norman Swan. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.